go the extra mile because there's less traffic there because it just it just em embodies the um, the need for resilience. Um, and I and I do think that we should see um, we should see our challenges in life, right? Because there's no one out there that doesn't have challenges. There's nothing out there that doesn't have barriers to success, right? And if there isn't a barrier to success, it's too damn easy and everyone is gonna do it. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Great Business Minds podcast, the definitive show for the business of digital infrastructure. I'm your host, John Marks Lima, and I use my experience as a digital infrastructure journalist to dig deep into business issues, but also get to know those who build our digital world. And our guest today is one of the key builders of that same exact world. He is a serial investor, a hugely successful entrepreneur, an author, a philanthropist, and above all, a maverick. I'm talking of no one else but Michael Tobin. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. I know, it's, especially in such a crazy year. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully it's starting to get back to normal, but um, yeah, it's been an interesting uh, sort of, what, 18 months or so. Yeah, God, it's been uh, a time to be alive. Um, but Michael, just uh, so for those that don't know, uh, you have been involved with some of the biggest names in the digital space, space including Telecity, which then you got sold to Equinix, Fujitsu. You're working with a lot of companies at the moment too, including HQNX, Audioboom, SunGuard. Um, the list is quite long. In 2014, you were awarded an OBE for your services to the digital economy uh, as part of the Queen's birthday. Um, you do a lot of charity work and some incredible campaigns to raise awareness and money for important causes. Um, I mean, it's, it's, the list is huge. Uh, there's, there's no way around that. There's a lot of things to talk about. Uh, you're a total machine. But let's, <laughs> let's maybe step back a little bit and talk about you first before we dive into what you work on and all the charity work as well. Sure. Um, one thing that I, when I was checking your website in preparation for this interview, one phrase that I really like, uh, liked on your website was success is a journey, not a destination. Um, yeah. And I think I agree with it, but would you mind to explain what you mean by this a bit more? And at the same time, do you think that a lot of people get a little bit blinded by wanting the fame of being successful, uh, which then ends up harming their success journey? Yeah, that's, it's an interesting point. I guess um, sort of think about success, you have to think about the, the opposite and, um, and people define that as failure, I suppose. Um, in, in our house, I tell the kids, there's, we don't use the word failure and we don't use the word mistake. We use um, success or learning. And if you think about it in that context, um, especially these days with, within the technology industry, you know, things are changing so fast that we're probably doing things that there's no reference point for. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's highly likely in that environment, you're going to get something wrong. But I see that as simply a step towards success. By definition, you're learning how not to do it. So you eliminate all these different ways of not doing it and you eventually get on the right path and you make it happen. So, so for me, I think um, if, if people are kind of emotionally kind of hinged on, on, on the concept of success, then they're probably you know, doing themselves a little disservice because you know, even when they get to wherever they think their objective is, their, their objective will immediately change to something further down the road. So, so even on that basis, you know, you, you're not going to be happy by achieving what you've striven to achieve for a while. You'll just put a new, a new kind of goal in place. 
No, it makes sense. And sometimes that also creates a bit of a barrier um, to achieve that success throughout yeah. a learning journey. Um, exactly. And I, I like the fact that you... Certainly, it certainly stops you making mistakes. You know, the fear of making a mistake mm. right, very often prevents people having success, right? Because you, you look at all the consequences and, and you, you, you mentioned it right, you know, the fame of it. But, you, you know, think about it in a, in a context of saying, um, I'm embarrassed if I get it wrong. Well, actually, you know, if you if you think about it as getting it wrong, you know, that's 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 the point that's wrong, not the embarrassment point. It's not getting it wrong. It's simply learning how not to do something. Hmm. And yes, I mean, we learn more from I know you don't like the word failure uh, <laughs> and mistakes, but we learn more from those than from our own successes because the success yeah. is like, right, this works. How can we do it even better? Well, it's also that the the absolute of negative, right? So, so, mm. and what I mean by that is that you know you don't really prove um, that you know how to do something when you get it right. You could have been lucky, yeah. right? But you certainly know that you know every time it doesn't work, then you know absolute in absolute fact that that option didn't work, right? So, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's 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 more truth in 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 failure than there is in success in a sense. And that's why we look at failure as a positive. We say that that's part of the journey towards success. Hmm. I know, I totally agree with that. Um, and then also another thing that I got quite interested on was that you described yourself as having a unusual but effective management style. Um, <laughs> I mean, the question here is very easy. What would you mean? What, what is your management style? <laughs> well, well, I guess, first of all, it's not a management style. It's more of a leadership style. And, and yeah. so, so the idea is that... Um, you know, if you first, first of all, surround yourself with, with the best possible people you can, you can afford in every single position, right? Mm. And then when you've done that, why, you know, why on earth would, would one assume that we could, we, we should need to tell them what to do? So if I've got the best finance guy in, in my team, then why would I tell him how to do it? If I've got the best tech guy in my team, why would I try and tell him how to do it? So, so the, the concept is build a vision Right. And this isn't like build a strategy document. And my first book, Forget Strategy, Get Results, talks about this. Right. It's hmm. you know, literally strategy is, is nonsense. You, you have a vision and you say, what do you want to be famous for? Right. And if you can then impart that vision to everybody around you, then you don't need a strategy. They'll go off and do everything they can possibly do in their power to achieve the vision. Hmm. So, so you're kind of you're guiding them towards a vision rather than than setting a, a, a sort of a step by step strategy for them. Let them do that. Mm. Which actually is something that we see in a lot of companies, especially as they grow. Um, sometimes management does get stuck in into wanting to know every little bit of detail of what yeah. employees are doing. So you not only waste employees' time, you waste your time as well, and then the business kind of stagnates uh, instead of growing. Yeah. It's also it's also linked to that fear of failure because imagine. Yeah. You know, if you've got this prescriptive document that is supposed to be your, your strategy, right? And then someone goes, oh, God, this, you know, I think I should be doing this, but it doesn't seem to fit this strategy that was written two years ago, by the way. And, and, and <laughs> you know, and now I'm really worried to do what I think is the right thing because I'm worried about getting told off. So, so you know, there's this kind of conflict suddenly between innovation and, you know, you've got to, you've got to allow people to, to have no fear of failure. Yeah, you've got to allow them to fail in a positive way. You've got to, you know, they've got to say, well, I thought this is the best way to do it and I've tried it, it didn't work. But what I did learn about it was, you know, we, if we tweak it this way, that's the way forward. See, that's the sort of thing that you can do and really, um, you know, inspire people to, to sort of push that, that envelope, push the edge of the envelope every time.
yeah, and just give them the freedom to actually help you build your business. Um, but uh, and then let's talk about influencers and mentors. I mean, who influenced you um, as a leader and who are your mentors? What experiences influenced this leadership style? Um, tell us a little bit more about the background of Michael Tobin. Well, I guess um, I, I, I'm not sure I've had many sort of business mentors, but there was a couple of a couple of really interesting things throughout my life that have stuck with stuck with me. One is um, I didn't go to university. I left school at 16. Hmm. And, um, I, I back in those days, there was no email or anything like that. And, and I was hoping to get an apprenticeship in electronics engineering with a company called oh. Rock and um, Rockwell Corporation. So I was sitting on Bond Street tube station on a, on a bench waiting for a train and I had this letter in front of me and I opened it up carefully and, and I, was, I knew it was the answer whether I'd got my apprenticeship position or not. <laughs> and I opened it up and, and it said you had and, and there was this old man sitting next to me um, and he, he probably was so old he couldn't even read what it said on the, on the letter, right? But he could see this kind of smile on my face and, and like staring at the letter. And he put, his in, he put his arm on my shoulder and hand on my shoulder and, and said, son, he said, always go the extra mile because there's less traffic there. And this was a stranger at the tube total station. Stranger, total stranger. And I'm sure he's passed away long ago because that was a very long time ago. And and but but that stayed with me forever right it's like go the extra mile because there's less traffic there so every every hurdle in life that you see as a problem you simply have to overcome it for it to be a problem for everyone else that you're competing against hmm. so the more hurdles you encounter the the better it is for you you just simply got to get over them and you're creating a distance between you and your competition right and that 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 for me has stuck with me and, th and then the second thing that I guess um, sort of stuck with me in, 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 in a sort of a lesson was um, back, in, back in the day, I was a, a sort of a, a young, uh, interested, wannabe salesperson. And, and the person that taught me to sell <laughs> was, um, I was probably about 20. The person that taught me to sell was, was actually a guy called Ian Watson, but he was Brian Adams's cousin, oh. Brian Singer, which is another story. But anyway, so he said, look, imagine, imagine you're a broom salesman right? And you've got a, a, terraced row in a terraced row of houses in front of you. So there's 100 houses. And you know, because your company's been selling brooms for 100 years, you know the stats, you know that for every 100 houses, 98% of them have got, or 98 of those houses have got a broom already, and they don't need your broom. One of them doesn't have a broom, but can't afford yours. But one out of the 100 is, it doesn't have a broom and can afford yours is going to buy them. And so you know that, right? So you arrive at your street, and, and you've got your broom in your hand and you knock on the first door. It doesn't matter where you start. You knock on the first door, bang, bang, bang. Someone opens the door. Chances are they'll say, no, thank you. I've got a broom, bang. You should go, yes, because you're one step closer to your sale. Hmm. Statistically, you know you're going to get 99 doors slammed in front of you before you get a sale. So the quicker you get through that, the quicker you are to sell. So, so that point of using negativity to positive outcomes hmm. is a great is a great lesson right so every time you get knocked back you know statistically it's highly unlikely for you to succeed first time so you know you're getting you're getting closer to your success by the definition of failing so I mean, that's another kind of real life lesson for me that stuck with me i mean i love both of them i mean the first one is beautiful and the second one really 
teaches you that you got to keep knocking at that door um, yeah. to achieve something. And I guess that's what um, younger entrepreneurs nowadays, um, sometimes they might get a bit misguided by the success of the Valley um, and think they can be the new Zuckerbergs overnight. They can be it, but it does take time and it would take a lot of doors in your face. Well, I um, think there's also, there's also some kind of expectation these days of kind of instant success, hmm. you know, so, you know, everyone, everyone sort of goes out and they go like, I want to, I want to start my own business and I've got this great idea for an app and, you know, and then they wonder why it's not got a billion downloads and they're not rolling around in a, in a yacht, you know, six months later. Hmm. And, you know, it's, it, it rarely happens. Right? I know, yeah. <laughs> It's a lot of work and a lot of a lot of kind of tears um, before you before you almost it's not quite earning the right because everyone has the right to be successful regardless. Yeah. But 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 almost earning the kind of the, the battle scars to know how to think about things. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you agree with me, but also I'm a big believer that you do have to go through phases in life where you need to learn maybe the harder lessons, because that will make you a stronger person and will help you even raise your business even more. Um, yeah, I mean, look, again, when, when people look at sort of, I think one of the big interesting differences between um, entrepreneurialism in the UK and in the US, right? Hmm. If someone in the UK has gone, uh, has, has had a failed business, they're seen as some sort of like reject, right? Or avoid him, he's had a, he's, he's gone bankrupt, right? And in the US, they say, Oh, he's gone bankrupt. Why did he go bankrupt? Well, because he ran out of cash. He was growing too fast. Ha! Huh, well, that's something he's not going to do again. So he's more backable now than before his mistake. That's interesting, right? And that's a very different way of looking at, of, at that kind of failure as a as a path to success. You know? mm. And I think we, you know, you can read a hundred books about learning to ride a bicycle. You will know the theory of riding a bicycle inside out, right? Yet the first time you actually physically get on a bike, you're going to fall off. Hmm. Most right? likely. <laughs> it doesn't matter how many, how many books you read. So, 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 you know, sometimes you've just got to get on and have the hard experience of knowing what works and what doesn't. Hmm. Um, and picking up on the hard experiences and getting a little bit personal here, um, you didn't have the easiest of the childhoods. Um, I, I can tell people go on Tobin's website and have a read uh, of Michael Tobin's biography because it's very interesting uh, where you came from and how you build up um, your career. But let's talk just a little bit about some of the episodes you went through. I mean, you were a victim of bullying. Um, you went through some traumatic episodes in Rhodonesia as a child. Um, how did you transform all that into willpower to become who you are now? Uh, so I guess, again, you know, it, it's something probably you, you can't be um, prescriptive about when you talk to other people because mm -hmm. everyone has their own challenges. And it's but but for me, you know, growing up in the East End of London, um, I was my, my father was a, a very violent man. He was he was a criminal. He was in and out of prison all the time. Um, when my mother got a chance to escape that um, abusive environment, when I was around seven years old, we escaped to Africa didn't realize that we were heading into what was then called Rhodesia, now called Zimbabwe, and it was in the middle of a civil war. Hmm. So it was about to enter a civil war. And um, I got petrol bombed several times, um, destroyed the house, um, got shot at many times. Um, one got me in the leg. And, um, and, and, and I guess 
you know, when you go through that kind of uh, sort of continuum, well, I got back to the UK when I was 12, and effectively they took everything from us at the airport before we left, literally our clothes, our luggage, our, our money, our jewellery, everything. And so we, we got back into London as refugees into our own country. And we lived in a squat in Stockwell for a couple of years. And we used to survive by um, breaking into all the condemned houses, waiting for demolition and see what people left when they moved out. And very often they would leave pianos, upright pianos, because um, they were very heavy. And so we'd, um, we'd tune them up. My, my, um, my, my stepdad, who, who my mother met in, in Africa, would, step, would uh, tune them up and roll them down the street to East Street Market and sell them for 25 pounds a piece. And that's how we survived for two years. Um, so, you know, when, when you kind of, when you, when you know that kind of um, sort of negative environment and you know that you've come through it, that's, that's a, um, a resilience kind of reference point that you can apply. Um, you know, one of the things I did with my management team back in, um, in the Telecity days was um, when we merged Telecity and Redbus um, to create the market leader in Europe, um, my, my team on the Redbus side was worried because they said, you know, consolidation means, you know, two people, one job. It means, you know, security. Oh, my God, what's going to happen? So I took them up to Scotland um, and they thought that we were going for a management meeting around a whiskey tasting. But actually, um, <laughs> we went to um, the place just on the north side of the Forth Road Bridge in um, at the Firth of Forth. And there's a massive aquarium in, you know, almost in the in the Firth of Forth. So you think you're in the open seas and it's enormous. And we pulled up there in this sort of coach and I told them to come out and they thought it was quite weird. And, and two by two, I told them, right, get your wetsuits on. And, and jump in and they thought well, this is ridiculous and and they, but they did it and then when they then they're getting into this massive aquarium they suddenly saw the shark fins in front of them and um i was called all sorts of names you know i hate you as my lawyer or this sort of thing and and yeah i, I don't think i'll be your best friend after that <laughs> <laughs> that's for sure slowly two by two everyone went here there was no cage no no nets no nothing it was open with the sharks and they were swimming right up to you physically you know within a within a you know 30, 30 centimeters of you. And these were massive sharks. And, um, and, and when they all came out, I said to them, well, how did you feel when you realized what you were gonna do? And they said, I was absolutely terrified. I hated you. I didn't wanna do it. You know, all my mind was, was attached to fear. Yeah. Um, and I said, well, how did it feel when you're actually on the seabed and they were right, at, right beside you, but, but you know, they weren't eating you. And they said, well, it was, an, it was still scary, but it was kind of like super electric and it was amazing. And I said, how do you feel now when you, now that you're out? And he said, and they said, sort of life-changing experience. I don't want to do it again, but I can't believe <laughs> it. And it's something I'm going to tell my grandkids. And, and I said, well, okay, well, every time you kind of go through a process where your fear is overcoming you and stopping you from, from taking one step in front of the other, then think about how you felt during that process and what the outcome was. And that gives you the confidence to go through because almost invariably, See, fear is a, is like a wasted energy, right? It's it's like it's like paying interest on a debt you haven't drawn down, hmm. you know, because you, you don't fear the past, you don't fear the present, you actually fear the future, right? And and so if there's something you can do to mitigate what you're afraid of in the future, you should do it. If there's nothing you can do, well, then don't be afraid of it. It's just it is what it is, like death. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and and then you know, and then anything else, right? Just enjoy the ride because you'll probably overestimate the bad side anyway, and you'll come out of it a better, you know, better person for, for, for enduring. 
So I think there's, you know, there's a lesson to be had in terms of um, fearlessness. And, and that's not, shouldn't be sort of um, confused with recklessness. Hmm. You know, caution is always good, but, but fearlessness um, is something that, that we should adopt in, in business as well. And, and that will allow us to, as, as we said earlier on, make those mistakes and take, you know, to, 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 to step on groundless ground. So, uh, so do things that we don't necessarily know the outcome of, but we have a gut feel that it could be right. No, I completely agree. And I mean, thank you so much for sharing your story as well, because um, I know it's a sensible part of life. But uh, I mean, and I will once the day I've got my own company, I'm going to take my employees to swim with the sharks as well. There um, you go. <laughs> did anyone resign after that? Um, no, um, <laughs> but, but anybody we didn't want, you know, on, after consolidation, we just give them a little nick on the arm. And, yeah. And cheaper than redundancy money. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but look, um, so far, I mean, all the advice you're giving and your views of life and business have been great, but what motivates you in life um, to do what you do? Well, I, I, love, I love life. I mean, you know, I, I enjoy sort of entertaining. I enjoy being with friends. I enjoy sort of just, it's a shame we haven't been able to party for the last 18 oh. months, but, but, you know, you and I remember back in the Monaco days and, you know, very rarely would you see me without a, a glass of champagne in my hand. So, <laughs> um, you know, generally I, I enjoy it. And, and, you know, in order to do that, I have to work hard. <laughs> mm. And, you know, I, but, but, it, but it, it, I get a buzz as well, right? I, I love doing deals. I love, I love bringing, you know, the word entrepreneur, you know, it, if, you, if you take a literal translation, it's, it's a, it means between taker. It's so someone that takes something in between a supply and demand dynamic, right? And so finding, you know, need and finding capability and bringing them together and creating value out of that and then taking a little bit of that value hmm. is, is what it's all about. And it gives me a real buzz. I enjoy it. Yeah, well, it's building bridges. Um, and I'm sure even virtually you have been building a lot of bridges. Um, and it's been, I mean, it's been a slightly challenging year. I mean, even us just to get on this call, we had our own challenges. Yeah. Um, but it's it it has been quite a uh, on the good and the, the the bad. But talking about building those bridges and the entrepreneur and picking up on one side to build the other and take something in the middle, how do you come up with new ideas? What's your thought process? Um, you know, it's funny because it just feels like um, things. You know, every now and again, you get a gut feeling about something, and you go like, you know this feels like it's right and and it doesn't no one's saying it's right it feels like it's right mm. and, and i and i tend to listen to my gut a lot um you know i tend to believe that my experience um of getting things right and wrong uh, uh gives me the right to have see gut feeling is a great thing gut feeling is simply a database that you you have built without realizing it of all the things that work and don't work in your in your life, hmm. right? And therefore, you know, whenever you see something, you you react according to your gut feeling. But actually, you, all you're doing is 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 doing a kind of a, a big data analysis of your of your history, and and, and working out the probabilities of result. I've right? never heard that before, but I like the explanation. I like the analogy. <laughs> that's all. That's all gut feeling is, and but and so our internal computers are doing this all the time, 
right? On, you know, if we're having problems with the sound on this call, then the gut feelings are, oh, try this, try that, try that. Why, mm. Why on earth would we think that? Well, because we kind of know from history that it's probably that we've got mute on or we've got the something wrong with our speakers. Or, you know, so, so that is our gut feeling coming out, mm. but it's based on history. It's not actually based on some unreasonable instinct. Hmm. So, so when we, we should listen to our gut feeling more and we should rely less on third party evidence when hmm. we do for things because our gut feeling is our own empirical evidence. And the more experience we have, the better our gut feeling becomes. Gut feelings are empirical evidence. I love that. <laughs> and, and empirical evidence. Uh, yes. <laughs> and uh, so, but then when you go and do these businesses, what's something that's that you would not compromise on? What's something that you you just wouldn't open hand off? So, so for me, um, I think, you know, integrity is pretty important because, you know, life's too short to spend, spend your life looking over your shoulder about something. Hmm. So, so, you know, just do, do right by people, be nice, um, you know, don't do anything that, that screws anyone. And, you know, some of the toughest deals I've ever had to do, you know, in the early days of, of Red Bus, you know, taking a 450 employees down to 80 to survive. Wow. And I had people you know, like spitting at me and everything else when I, when I, when, when we come mass redundancy, but I had to focus on the 80 employees that we were keeping. Otherwise the whole company would have been bankrupt. Right. And yeah. so that's not doing wrong by someone making people redundant, but, but it's, doing it in the right way. And, you know, um, I remember that, you know, we looked at the number and we literally had like two paydays left. And, and the choice was, it was no, I think it was November or December. And we said, you know, tell them before Christmas and ruin their Christmas or, you know, tell them and then give them two months money or yeah. tell them after Christmas. So they have a nice Christmas and give them one month's money. And I said, well, tell them before Christmas because they may overspend. They may be in a worse position with one month money after Christmas than, than having a sort of a more conservative Christmas with two months money in advance. Um, and yet everyone was sort of shouting at me for, for spoiling their Christmas. But my position was trying to think of, think of their welfare in a, in a more medium term. And, uh, you know, those hard decisions, you know, they, they, they're really, they're gut-wrenching to make, but you, as, as a business person, you have the responsibility of all the other people in all the stakeholders in your company as well to think of, right? Other employees, other suppliers that rely on you, you know, your customers that rely on you, you know, and, and, and those, you know, it's a tough world out there, but, but try not to compromise on integrity because those are the things that, you know, mis mistakes are forgotten actually. That's why they're not important, but, but regret lasts forever. Hmm. you know you can't get rid of it yeah well I, I i like what you just said as well because that's one thing that uh when i speak to a lot of people like you as well it's probably actually payable than letting employees know what's going on and at the right time yeah. um it's probably someone's biggest worry um and i think yeah two days before christmas it probably was better than letting them overspend um, exactly. over the season um but then talking about employees as well i mean and especially now in the digital infrastructure space we are on this journey or even a, a battle to really get diversity and inclusion um, at the forefront of what we do. What do you think are the biggest misconceptions and even mistakes around diversity and inclusion in this sector? It's a, it's a, 
Well, I think this sector, this sector is um, not materially different to others um, in that respect. And I think that um, we are, you know, what the, what, the, what the nirvana is, right, is that you get to a point where you don't have to think about diversity and inclusion, right? Mm. That, that is the nirvana. So um, people get any, any job on merit, right? And, and there is no uh, glass ceiling for any demographic um, sort of slice that 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 is either um, obvious or not or, or not obvious. But so I think, you know, that's the the nirvana. Now, how do we get there? There we're coming from a biased position, so we have to almost have reverse bias in our approach to counteract that. Right? Hmm. I'm not a fan of reverse bias. Generally, I, I find you know because I, I I'm almost like I just want to be at the end game of of that nirvana already, and hmm. which which doesn't include reverse bias to me, but, but I also recognize that, you know, to get there, we have to apply some sort of um, proactive approach to this. So, you know, I, I think one of the issues is um, w- women in STEM, in STEM subjects at school, um, mm-hmm. you know, that they, they need to be promoted more to think about STEM, STEM subjects um, and to be encouraged to see the benefits of that. And I think that then flows through to a more technologically biased, um, sort of career profile, hmm. which then allows more women into our, into our sector. Hmm. It's because they'll, they'll get more exposure to it. I think things like that, that, you know, really important. Um, you know, I, I <laughs> it's a, it's a very big, it's a big subject, but it, but it's but it's good that people are talking about it, and it's good that people are starting to make um, these positive kind of approaches to it. Even though I'm, I say I'm, I'm not a fan of of, of positive bias, but um, I, I do think it's necessary in the short term. Yeah, and hopefully we are starting to move into a, a better position as well. Um, but yeah, things are getting better, right? It's yeah. just it's not perfect yet, but things are getting better. Yeah. It's a progressive story. Um, you know, but I, I do think that, you know, if you're, if you're part of the demographic that is, um, still suboptimal, Hmm. they're probably saying progress isn't fast enough. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and that's probably right as well. Yeah. I mean, I think it'll be interesting once we get back to conferences, um, coming from a before where, I mean, I don't know, 80, 90% of the audience was male, um, in suits usually. Um, let's see how it goes like at the end of this year, especially into next year in 2023, how much it has actually changed uh, throughout these lockdowns and the time we've been at home without seeing people um, indoors somewhere. So that, that'll be an interesting thing to, to look at once we get back to the big event. Yeah, I think, I think it's very interesting because, um, yeah, we, we, it, it doesn't, on one hand, it feels like, you know, it's been forever since we've been, um, we've, we've, we've been able to do these conferences. And on the, on the other hand, it's only, it's only been 18 months in reality. Yeah. Um, you know, I just wonder whether anything has changed or not, hmm. you know, or whether it, we're just going to sort of slide back into what it was before. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I hope not. I hope some good change has happened <laughs> in the backstages. Um, but also, I mean, now let's talk about your books. You've launched three books in six years. So you're on an average of two books a year, uh, one, sorry, one book every two years. Yeah. Um, I mean, what made you put pen to paper and, um, and share your story and your thoughts. Um, and I mean, and c- when can we expect the, the fourth book? <laughs> well, the fourth book <laughs> actually written. 
Um, oh, is it? Oh, well, then you're going to have to talk about it. <laughs> it's a post-COVID book, but I won't talk about it yet. It hasn't been published yet, and I'm still thinking about when to publish it. But, but the, um, yeah, the, I mean, there are there three different books, right, and, and three different kind of um, reasons, I guess. The first one, um, Forget Strategy, Get Results, was um, trying to talk about this alternative way of leadership. And I, I'm, you know, I say it's sort of, it goes into d different aspects of how that, um, using the Telecity story as a kind of a, as, as a thread that ran through um, that runs through the book, it, it kind of talks about different ways of making people see that vision rather than have to force have to manage them to to deliver a strategy. And I, I guess you know the shark the shark story is in there. And there's another story about um, uh, when we did eventually merge Telecity and Redbus together, and and mm. now we sort of one combined um, sort of management team, there was, um, you know, obviously most people got it. They kind of, these two competitors, they, they've been like head to head competitors and suddenly they're on the same side and some of them got it and they were kind of okay about it. And some of them were still sort of living in the past and not quite getting it. So I took them um, up to the North Pole and um, we stayed in, a, in, a, in, in the ice hotel. If anyone sort of hasn't been there, you should really try it. It's incredible. It's, it's every year they make it out of blocks of ice hmm. um, and there's ice beds, ice tables, ice chairs, ice, ice um, plates, everything is ice, right? <laughs> and, um, and, and, you, and I took them into the, uh, the bar to get them well, uh, well lubricated in, in advance. And, warm. <laughs> and um, so after a couple of hours of drinking, um, I explained to them the sleeping arrangements. And um, uh, what they what they hadn't realized was you have to sleep two per bed for body warmth. Right? <laughs> share, share one of these dual um, sleeping bags. And so the ones that didn't get on, I made them sleep together. And they were the best of friends in the morning, you see. So, you know, they, they, you know things like that where, where, you know, sort of trying to ex express to people the logic rather than than just getting them to read a document is 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 a better way of leadership, I think. Mm. Yeah. The second book um, was was uh, Live, Love, Work, Prosper, which is, a, again, a completely different approach. It was how um, work-life balance for me doesn't exist. And um, you've either got to in integrate work and life or you're going to fail at one or the other. If you're a driven mm -hmm. person, trying to balance two things that you should put equal, set, um, equal amounts of drive into will ultimately lead to failing, to, uh, by, uh, failing at least one of them. So, so you've got to find uh, a 45 degree angle that integrates them both. And I think lockdown has been a great um, uh, example of how everyone's now working from home, which is, you know, proven that, you know, working from home works and, and that you don't have to um, either be late in the office or, you know, or you're going to get compromised at home and people are shouting at you for not coming. <laughs> home. You know, now, you know, th th that's a typical example, but yeah. Live, Love, Work, Prosper goes into different angles of why it's important to stop trying to balance your life and try to embrace everything as your life, hmm. right? Otherwise, you'll find yourself wasting elements of it. And then the third book, um, which is doing incredibly well at the moment, is called Lifting the Floor. And anyone in the data center industry will know what I mean by that, because um, the first thing I do when I when I walk around a new data center to see if it's um, if it's well maintained, is I get one of those little suction cups and lift up a floor tile, 
and have a look underneath. And, and if it's nice and clean down there, <laughs> I think it's well maintained. If it's all dirty and grubby and, and, the, and the cables are all twisted and everything else, you know, that's like, that's like sort of saying, well, you know, I don't, I don't clean my shoes properly. But, um, but so, so it, lifting the floor is the story of the data center industry from um, so right back from the, from the late nineties when it was all kind of, you know, the Equinixes, Peter Van Camps and, and these yeah. guys and, and, and then, um, you know, through the sort of Telecity Red Bus days and the merger and some fun stories about the whole um, demon internet, um, Cliff Stanford years <laughs> sort of thing. And then right up to today, today with, um, you know, obviously the, the big BIMOFs of Equinix Digital and Edge Connects and, 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 and how it looks like it's, it's moving going forward with the breakup of the sort of hyperscalers on one end and the kind of, you know, edge, edge computing on the other and, and sort of super local, you know, sort of street corner data centers and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I find the market fascinating and your books also gave a lot of good insights. I will talk about the market soon. I mean, on lifting the floor, I'm probably the last person you want me lifting the floor of your data center because I'm quite known for breaking technology stuff. So um, <laughs> I can't, I mean, laptops, phones. Um, I think I once actually broke a button in the data center and I was quite scared. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then when I, vis when I visited the um, SuperNAP switch data center in Vegas, I literally just kept in the middle of the, the corridors because I did not want to touch anything. That's that's how prone to things going wrong with me <laughs> things are. <laughs> um, so I'll probably write a book like um, not lifting the floor, just staying away from everything <laughs> in the data center. But Michael, uh, before we go for a quick break um, on this chat, tell me what it was like to receive an OBE, so an order of the British Empire from Prince Charles um, in 2014. Well, obviously it's, it's a a great a great honor it was uh um it was for services to the to the digital economy and i was i was very extremely flattered because obviously it wasn't it wasn't me that that kind of transformed the industry across europe it was the it was the people that 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 worked with um with telecity and and in and around the industry that did it but i was effectively the kind of the figurehead for that i suppose and and um you know i i went i went to buckingham palace to receive it and I do a lot of work with charities um, and in particular with um, a couple of charities. One is um, the Prince's Trust and the other is British Asian Trust and both have um, Prince Charles as their patron. And um, so I, 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 got, I get to see Prince Charles quite a bit. And what's quite funny is that when, you, when you're there to receive your, your OBE, you're, you know, you're standing in a sort of an ante room. Um, it's almost like um, waiting for your, your graduation. You know, at university, and you're waiting for your name to be called up, right? And you're in this long sort of queue, and you walk across, and there's all the people there, and beautiful orchestra playing, and 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 uh, there's there's Prince Charles there, and and people walk up and and bow, and then he pins your medal on, and then you say a couple of words, and you move on, and and it's very quiet, and everyone, it's all sort of the music playing and everything, and when I walked out, he looked at me and he went, "What you again?" And you know. Like, <laughs> Then he just seen me like last week and and uh, I said, well, you can talk. I was hoping for your mum. And so, um, you know, the, 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 we, start, we both burst out, burst out laughing and everyone was wondering what, what on earth we were laughing about. <laughs> I uh, bet his PAs were like, get him out, get him out. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was a funny it was a funny moment. But um, yeah, he's he's a fantastic guy and, and um, put so much put so much of his time into charity. Hmm. Um, but yeah, no, it was a, it was a great, it was a great uh, privilege to, to get that award. 
No, I'm sure it was. Uh, and Michael, before we continue, let me just say, um, here's a quick message from our partner in Border. Are your onboarding processes built for a world that no longer exists? Emborder is the first experience-driven onboarding platform and is a new way businesses onboard. Emborder's platform emphasizes the value of human connection and experience, putting the employee at the center of everything we do. With Emborder, you can turn new hires into highly engaged long-term employees and managers into onboarding rock stars. We're living in an experience era. Your employee expectations are higher than ever. So don't lose out on top talent and check out Emborder today. See the description for more information. Welcome back to the second part of the Great Business Minds podcast episode with Michael Maverick Tobin. Uh, Michael, in the first part, we talked a lot about your experiences and lessons, but let's now go into the industry itself uh, and dive into the work that you're doing. Um, let's begin with data centers. What do you think is the biggest disruption today in the data center marketplace? Well, I think I think the the industry is going going in two different ways now, right? I mean, if you if you look at the last decade or so, or the last fifteen years, um, it was it was about sort of the, where where data needs to be analyzed immediately, and where data needs to be stored for kind of historical analyzation. So you've got the data centers in the city centers, which in Europe were built around the, the internet hubs, right? So the internet exchanges, links, AM6, DKICS. So you've got a lot of these data centers in city centers and they were super, super highly connected. They had all the telcos in there and they became very, very lucrative because nobody could leave. So these mm -hmm. hubs just became kind of centers of, of connectivity and the owners of those, which are predominantly now Equinix and digital, um, effectively could charge what they liked for those because the, the customers couldn't leave. And then on the other side, you had these sort of wholesale data centers, which were where the generally storage existed, right? So, you know, people that wanted to analyze on an AI basis, historic data and things like that, they you know, put it all out in the countryside. And again, the benefactors historically were sort of digitals and, and, and those sorts of guys and more now the Equinixes too are getting into the hyperscale space because now it's moved into hyperscalers so everything's gone to cloud right or mm. every, progressively things are going to cloud there'll all be, always be some stuff that never gets to cloud um, but generally a lot more and more sort of use goes on to, onto public cloud and so the the you know the AWSs and the and the 365s and you know the Google Google clouds are all growing in their own way and they all need big um, big facilities generally outside the city centers because you can't get the power in the city centers anymore for that sort of scale. So you're seeing one end of the transaction, uh, one end of this in the industry going in that, that side of things, right? So lots and lots of hyperscale. And Edge Connects is a great player in that. Despite their name of, of Edge, right? Generally, they're in the hyperscale game, Yeah. right? Um, the second... The second area of which is now coming more into focus is edge. Now, if you fast forward and whether that's 10 or 15 years from now, who knows? And we tend to overestimate the uptake of new technology in a 10 year period and we underestimate it in a 15 to 20 year period. So, you know, it's about getting getting that sort of trajectory right. But generally, for me, edge means having mini data centers on every street corner. OK. And, and you know, that's, that's going to be driven by driverless vehicles and all these things. I mean, two driverless vehicles go, you know, driving a, 
towards each other about to have an accident are not going to expect to communicate with Seattle for a response. No, it's right? too long. It's too long. So they're going to want to communicate with the street corner or with the, each other and say, hey, I'll, I'll swerve left, you swerve right, we're going to miss each other. Right? Yeah. And so that communication is going to need to be super latency critical and super low latency. So, so street corners are going to be where it's at eventually. But between capital capital city city center and local village street corner there's a lot of program you know a lot of sort of stages and i think you know things like 5g help um you know we we're now going to regional data centers so i chair a company in in the netherlands called north sea hmm. which is regional so it's not just amsterdam it's rotterdam delft utrecht you know the, the regions i chair pulse in the uk which is milton Keynes. It's, it's uh, Edinburgh, it's Reading, you know, it's a different places around outside of London. And I think this is the next step. So you're getting these regional data centers. But the other part of the edge, which isn't quite sort of non-capital cities, but it's emerging markets, right? So, you know, South Africa is a great play with Terraco, you know, China, India, South America. These areas are kind of edge. Hmm because we, we haven't been there yet, but we, we haven't even got into going outside of the capital markets in those, in those emerging markets, right? So, so I think there's plenty more steps to come. And that's what excites me about the industry generally is because you know, we still haven't seen, you know, there's still so much more growth in, in the data center space. Hmm, yeah, and and again, not just on the developed markets um, and capitals and even sub regions um, of developed countries, but the ones you mentioned, like Africa, South America, Southeast Asia. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I personally find those markets fascinating, and I know you're a little bit involved with things in Africa as well. Um, yeah, well, I I, um, I I worked. We bought we bought Terraco in in South Africa with Pamira yeah. in 2015. And we sold it in 2019, and that was an amazing journey. Um, and they've they've tripled since then. Yeah. And it's just a stunning business. And 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 now, you know, I don't believe that the the growth of the internet traffic in Africa can be sustained by going through Nap Africa, which is essentially um, Terraco. It has to be broken out into at the very least northeast southwest. Yeah. Which means that you're probably going to have, you know, like. Um, you know, our, our friend uh, Amin in, in, in the north. In Morocco, yeah. Morocco, you're going to have, um, you know, probably someone on, in, in either Nigeria with, with Rack Center, like um, yeah, Tunde. Uh, yeah, Tunde. And you're going to have someone in Kenya for the, for the east. And, and, you know, at the very least, you're going to have those four points being your, your new hubs of, of data within Africa. Hmm. And then slowly from there, you know, the story of edge continues, then you're going to have the kind of, you know, the, 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 the extra countries that tap off of those countries. And then eventually you're going to have hyperlocal. So you're not going to have um, just Lagos in Nigeria, you'll have, um, uh, you know, Abuja and, and places like that. So, hmm. so I think the, that journey continues in all these emerging markets. That's why you've got another 15, 20 years at least of massive growth in the data center industry, as long as people are, are, are courageous enough to get into the emerging markets as well as the developed markets. Yeah, I, I find it fascinating. And we've seen even just the last 12 months, the amount of work that has gone into Africa um, and the amount of backstage work that's happening in terms of financing as well to build infrastructure. Um, yeah. Speaking of financing and money to build the industry and the infrastructure, 
Um, a new thing that came around is the SPACs, so the Special Purpose Acquisition Companies, which is something that you are quite interested in and you're running one as well. Um, I mean, explain this to us because I think this is still quite new and I think the market still needs a bit of um, an education around it. Tell yeah. us why, why did it grab your attention and what, what does it bring to the data center? Well, so, so there's, there's a couple of reasons why, why SPACs are, are, are a good tool to have in the toolbox, right, mm -hmm. in terms of um, capital raise and, and, and the capital structures of companies. And so basically what it is is a special purpose acquisition company, which essentially the process is um, if you've got a nice growth company, like which data centers often are, and you're a founder, you may not want to go the private equity route because you're, you, you may not, you may get the value of today with private equity and, you know, valuations are pretty lofty. You know, companies are trading in, in the twenties of multiples of EBITDA and things like that. But because of the growth of the business, you're probably giving away, if you believe in your own company, you're probably giving away many years of growth going forward. And that's obviously what is interesting to the, to the, um, to the private equity side as well. So you say, well, okay, maybe what I want is some liquidity options, but I don't want to. But I also want to take advantage of the future growth. So an IPO would be a logical answer for for a company in that context. But IPOs are a pain in the neck, basically. <laughs> they take management out of the business for six months. So they take, you know, the the the, the whole process depends on the market volatility and the and the appetite and sentiment of investors at the moment you intend to float. So it's very unstable. It's very, you know, it's not very sure in terms of a process. So what the SPAC does is basically it goes through all that pain to raise, to list a vehicle and raise, you know, let's call it a couple of hundred million dollars into a vehicle, right? Which is now listed and then goes and looks at a target and merges with that target. Hmm. And instantly overnight, that target becomes a listed company. And the, and the price is fixed. There's no volatility in the marketplace at that point. So it's a simple, quick, and guaranteed way into a listed vehicle for that target. So that's, that's in a nutshell what a SPAC does. So it allows a company that probably has the intent, that, that could benefit from being listed, hmm. it allows it to list in a painless way. Okay, so a lot of companies in the US turning to SPACs, right? Less so in Europe yet, but hmm. you know they they will. It's a it, there is a definite kind of niche in 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 terms of companies that that would benefit from a SPAC rather than an IPO or a, or a take private. Hmm. Yes, and I mean, and like you say, in the US, this is quite common, um, especially outside the data center space, and now it's coming into this industry. Can you lift the lead a little bit on what you're doing around that, or is it too um, early? Well, it's too early, really. I mean, <laughs> and also, you know, as a SPAC, by definition, um, doesn't have any engagement with any targets until after it's IPO'd. So, um, you know, until we IPO, there's there's not a lot to say on it. But <laughs> other than the fact that, you know, as I say, they're very they're very useful tools. Yeah. But you know, the market the market is a fickle thing at the moment. It's um, it's up and down every day. Hmm. Well, I will be there today that you float. I, I will be definitely there. <laughs> uh, and Michael, so let's talk just a little bit about inter entrepreneurship within this space uh, and then into the businesses you work with specifically. Um, how do you see the role of the entrepreneur changing in the digital infrastructure space? And what top three tips have you got um, for people starting up in the data center space? 
Well, I guess I guess the data center space for entrepreneurs is is very difficult, actually. I would say, um, for a couple of reasons. One is that data centers, by definition, demand a lot of capital. Hmm. Um, you know, you're looking at sort of eight million dollars per megawatt to build them. And so, you know, if you've got a typical 10 million mega, 10 megawatt facility that you think in a building, then you've got to find $80 million and that's just to build it. And, and that's assuming that you, you, you know, you can be operational free cash flow positive on day one, which is also a challenge. You've got to find an anchor, yeah. anchor tenant and everything else. So it's not conducive to an entrepreneur environment, right? Because it doesn't allow you to start small and grow really. Um, there's been, you know, you can do it in certain circumstances, but I think generally you need a, you need a financial sponsor on your side. Now, if you can get a financial sponsor, um, the second challenge is, and we've seen this a number of times, and, um, I've often had chats with, um, with Guy Wilner on this one, right? Because mm -hmm. he's, he's, he's been a great kind of, um, founder of fantastic data center businesses that, that then continue to need more capex as they grow, and that's success-based capex. But because you know you start with a founding shareholding, but every time you get more capital in, you're reducing your shareholding. Hmm. Suddenly, you get a great business, but you've got a tiny shareholding left, which feels like you're doing a whole load of hard work with a lot of risk for a small outcome. <laughs> and you know, and and then the you know the, the big banks and things come along when all the all the risk is wound out of them and and take take it take up all the upside, you know. So so I think. The second, the second issue is, you know, how do you avoid getting diluted out of the value as an entrepreneur? Mm. So I think those two items are, are, are quite challenging for entrepreneurs within the data center space, as opposed to other elements of technology. If you're building an app and that sort of stuff, you know, you can, you can build it relatively cheaply and you mm. can keep most of your, most of your equity, you know, maybe borrow some money to do some marketing. You know, it, it's kind of, it's a different story. Mm. So I think it's quite challenging, but 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 I think um, where where you can um, be entrepreneurial as opposed to an entrepreneur is um, you know think about the 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 fundamentals of the industry and look at every market and say um, are we in this market you know are there going to be more users of the internet tomorrow than there were yesterday. You know, if the answer is yes, it's probably going to lead to more data centers. Are there going to be more regulatory dynamics that need um, uh, sovereign data considerations tomorrow than there were yesterday? The answer is probably yes. You know, are, you know, are we going to be using more and more megabits per mobile phone tomorrow than we were yesterday? The answer is probably yes. So all of the fundamental drivers that mean that there's going to be more data center capacity required tomorrow than yesterday are, are ongoing. So when you look at new markets, ultimately it's just a question of when, not if they are profitable for a data center operator, right? Hmm. So I think that's the entrepreneurial vision is trying to find that moment in time where you don't, you don't want to be bleeding edge for a new, a new market, but, but being leading edge is, is, hmm. is the entrepreneurial moment. Yeah, it's just a moment in time that's so key. Yeah. Um, and then maybe a bit of luck, or are you not a believer in luck? Oh, no, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm a believer in luck. You know, I'm, I'm, as I said, I didn't go to university, so um, I'm not a very clever person. Um, and I surround myself with the cleverest people I can find. Um, but you need a lot of luck.
I mean, they, Telecity became Telecity um, basically because it rained um, mm. in Prague. And that story is in my, in my first book. So um, if, you, if you wonder what I mean by that, but basically had it not rained, um, Telecity wouldn't have existed. I mean, it is fascinating, um, the stories you've told over the years as well, because <laughs> I remember you telling me this story in Monaco two or three years ago, so uh, it is amazing. But uh, I mean, so Telecity was sold to Equinix uh, a few years ago, I think for 1.5 billion. Um, uh, more actually, 3.5. 3. 3.5, oh, sorry. I'm, I mean, it's so many billions, it's hard to, to keep all the numbers <laughs> in the head. Uh, but I mean, fast forwarding to today, today you're working with a lot of interesting companies. Um, yep. One of them, for example, being Edge Connects. Uh, yeah. who's just jumped into India with the, the, the Adani group and from Adani X. Yeah. Um, I mean, give us a roundup of what you're working on today with all these businesses that you're involved with. Yeah, I mean, look, um, you know, I've got, I, first of all, I chair a couple of listed entities in the UK. I've yeah. got Audio Boom PLC, which is Europe's largest podcast platform, um, which is going absolutely gangbusters. I mean, podcasts is, is exploding. Hmm. Um, uh, oh, we're doing a podcast. Yeah, we? we are doing. I, I was just thinking that. I was like, you can also you can also find this podcast on Audio Boom. <laughs> yeah, so Audio Boom sits underneath um, Spotify and Apple and things like that. So you effectively, um, you know, you you can you can go to whatever your normal supplier is, and and Audio Boom probably sits underneath that and is the is the kind of um, marketing and advertising engine essentially for those. Um, Big Blue Broadband, which is high speed broadband via satellite and fixed wireless across the world. So if you're in the middle of Australia, you're probably never going to see a bit of fiber in the next 20, 30, 40 years. Mm. Um, but, you know, with the sat with geostationary satellites that the Australian government have put up over the middle of Australia, you can still get super fast broadband um, with a satellite dish the size of a sky dish on your on your on your on your property. So, you know, there's 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 that business. Then um, on the private side, as I said, I'm chairman of Polson in the UK, which is a regional data center operator across the UK. Um, North Sea in, in the Netherlands, where I've got um, Alex Schles, who was my ex-country manager for the Netherlands in, in um, Telecity. Um, she's running that for me out there. And that's a fantastic business in all the regional story, uh, centers in, in the Netherlands. Hmm. Um, I chair Edge Connects, which is now becoming a, a truly global operator of, of hyperscale uh, facilities. And you, you're right, you know, they, they've, they've just gone to um, India they're, they're, they're looking to go to China very soon. Um, we've just recruited a, a new head of Asia. Um, you know, they've expanded into South America, got the Santiago facilities out there, had a big um, asset win in, in, um, in Poland, um, got another 40 odd megawatts in, 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 um, in the Netherlands. So really extraordinary growth of Edge Connects. Um, then um, there's a few other bits and pieces. I sit on the board of SunGuard, which was a debt to equity conversion. And that was an old disaster recovery business, which has now kind of evolved into kind of sophisticated business continuity services. Um, yeah, I've got, a, I've got several other bits and pieces that I, that I play with. Amato, <laughs> Amato is a local um, data center operator in, in Reading that I chair. And that's a great little business, you know, just providing capacity into the Reading marketplace. Okay. So, so you know, there's all sorts of things that I, I look at. DC Byte is a great one, which is a tool that um, that data center operators used to, to find where the next piece of land will be for a data center. So it looks at where power and connectivity and planning converge to find great locations for data centers. Um, so, you know, there's all sorts of kind of sub-connected businesses that, that I'm, I'm involved in in the sector. 
Yeah, I, I mean, like I said at the beginning, the list is very long. <laughs> so I just recommend everyone to go to Michael's website and get to to read all of this because uh, it's a lot of interesting businesses. But just a quick follow up on that one. You mentioned the the company in Reading, uh, and there's also the one in in uh, in the Netherlands. Yeah. Do you think what I mean? Do you think boutique data centers have a space um, in the long term? Well, I think ultimately they all get gobbled up by the big boys. Whereas yeah. the big boys go on their journey through the um, regional story, hmm. right? So again, it's finding assets that will be extremely valuable to someone else in five years' time. That's that's the way I think about life, right? It's it's growing a business over a period of time until it becomes impossible to be ignored by the big boys. You know, Equinix is going to sooner or later say, you know what, I. Whilst I'm, I love my my you know my hyper you know connected businesses in the old telehouse type businesses in you know in in Ducklands and things like that, and I love my and I love my hyperscale stuff. Um, the law of big numbers says the bigger I become, the more the more physical stuff I have to do to maintain my growth rate. Hmm. Right. So you know, getting ten percent growth on on a billion and getting ten percent growth on three billion is is a big difference in absolute terms. So they've got to do more things. So they've got to go into this regional story, hmm. right? So, so getting, you know, picking up an asset that has all the regional plays in, in a country is the next logical step for them, right? So, so by building a business up um, from a regional play where you can get into a business at sort of 12 to 15 times EBITDA, and then you exit at 22, 23, 24 times EBITDA to the big boys, because that's what they're trading at. Seems to me like a very entrepreneurial story. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, with EBITDA. <laughs> Especially with a growth, growth rate that goes in between those sort of five years as well. So, so for me, you know, there's plenty of opportunities, whether it's regional in, in mature markets, or it's hyper-local, or it's emerging market, all of those you know, the end game is that the, the big boys gobble it up. Hmm. And okay, so sounds good to me. And Michael, you're also a philanthropist and a, a very good one. I mean, you've done some incredible campaigns to raise awareness and money. You slept under the stars to raise awareness for homelessness. Uh, you went to the Arctic as well. I think it was the Arctic, South yeah, Pole. Antarctic, yeah. Antarctic, sorry. Um, I mean, you have so many stories. What's been the highlight? What's been the one that really stuck with you? The one that you're really proud, proud, proud of? Well, I, I'm proud of all of them. I mean, sleeping in the streets is 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 an eye opener. Um, you know, you realize that actually no one sleeps in the streets because, especially in in London, because you've got the church bells ringing until midnight. You've got um, drunks coming out, or used to have um, probably soon again. Um, then you've got um, you know you've got foxes running around. You've got the dustbin men coming up four in the morning. You've got yeah, other people trying to mug you for your for your wallet, and you know you just don't, the 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 life of of a homeless person is incredibly difficult, and you know, and you don't even need to be on the streets to be homeless. You can be sofa surfing, and and it's still a sense of belonging that is missing that everyone should be entitled to. Um, and it's very often children. There's sixty thousand homeless children in the UK, for example, which is an incredible number. Um, and and then the forty marathons in forty days for Princess Trust, I believe. You know, everyone should be given an opportunity in life. And uh, the Princess Trust gives lots of people that have maybe just fallen between the cracks or fallen on the wrong side of the, tr the railroad tracks, um, gives them another opportunity, another chance. So doing the 40 marathons in 40 days was, was something that, you know, the resilience that I needed to do that was, was incredible. Um, 
but the South Pole for me last year was just ridiculous. It was beyond anything that I could I, 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 I could have imagined in advance. I mean, what I didn't realize was that Antarctica as a continent is bigger than, bigger than North America and that it, virtually all of it's at 10,000 feet altitude and dragging a hundred kilo sledge for, for weeks um, in minus 50 degrees, 24 hour daylight, um, having to poo into a bag and carry it with you because you're not allowed to leave anything, not even your, your waist uh, on, the, on, the, on the ice is just the most, with, and knowing that no one can rescue you in any, in any short period of time, it could take days for anyone to get to you, which just so um, emotionally, mentally, and, and physically draining. It was the, the hardest thing I've ever done. I mean, I remember a lot of preparation went to that, to that one because you were sharing a lot of pictures of your preparation and uh, the warming up to go <laughs> into the coldest still, place. And I was still massively unprepared, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's like stepping in a different planet. Uh, it's a whole new world. I mean, nothing grows there, right? I mean, nothing. You know, you could see 30 kilometers in every direction and nothing. Absolutely just snow and, you know, and, and having this kind of, the, the mental stamina of being able to just walk for 12, 14 hours a day, exhausted at, at, at altitude, dragging a sledge. Um, you know, it's I'm at the monotony and, and what goes through your mind while you're doing it. it it's, it's, you know, it's a, it, it actually adds, it adds another dimension to your, to your persona, I think. Hmm. So what's your next challenge? Um, in terms well, of I have another one, but I'm not allowed to talk about it. My oh, wife no. is <laughs> talking about it because she says once you start socializing it in, in, in public, it becomes reality and she's not quite comfortable with it yet. So it's more significantly more extreme than the South Pole. Let's put it that way. Um, oh, you got to get me guessing. I mean, extreme <laughs> I, scuba diving. I'm not going to. I'm not going to answer because every every pro, every answer I say no, it's going to be an elimination for this. <laughs> I, mean, I can't even think of what's more extreme than going to the South Pole. <laughs> There's only one or two things that are more extreme, and one of them is is what I intend to do. So. You know, I'm definitely going to Google this after we finish this call. <laughs> uh, and Michael, what's next for you um, from a business standpoint, from where you are in life? What's next? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate now that, you know, I'm able to, to sort of choose what I get involved in. And, and, and life, as I said before, life's too short to, to do things you don't like. And so I, I, I try to get involved with people I enjoy being with, people I enjoy engaging with. Um, you know, I've invested in some restaurants lately because, you know, they're going to come back strong. Um, and I think, um, again, spotting opportunities where, you know, just because something's on the floor doesn't mean to say it's a bad investment. It's probably the right time to invest. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the restaurant industry has been through the, uh, the most painful times and, and there's some great bargains to be had there. And, you know, giving back, we, we, we still do a lot for charity. We, we want to do more of that, I think. Um, and I think philanthropy probably takes up 40% of my time now. And that probably increases over the next five years. Um, and, and, you know, I just want to be, again, if you, if you don't, if you don't separate work and life, right, which was the point about forget balance and get in, you know, integration, um, then, then you will enjoy everything. And, and if you enjoy everything, then more of anything is great. So, so sorry, yeah. I, I'm taking a lot of your time. <laughs> No, not at all. That was an Amazon delivery just turned up there. If you heard <laughs> ding dong, you know, so uh, 
unfortunately that's uh, that's part of life these days with lockdown isn't it you got I like, I like the bell actually <laughs> um and and michael what's um, what's been the worst and the best advice you have ever received um well i think i probably um I think I've probably mentioned a couple of the points, you know, that, that the, the two bits of advice that I that I mentioned earlier with the old man and on the Bond Street tube station and mm. and um, Brian Adams's cousin. Um, but uh, but I think you know, worst advice. Oh. Well, actually, there's one more piece of advice that I would add to those those two, and um, it's a, it's a phrase that Winston Churchill's famous for, and he said, "When you're going through hell, keep going." Mm or don't stop, you know, stopping in hell is not a good option, right? So if you're going through it, just keep going and you get out the other side and then you can think about stopping. So, so you know, the, the again, it's down to sort of resilience. When, when times are difficult, when, when you're kind of going through sort of hard times, that's probably the moment that you don't want to give up more than anything else, right? Hmm. Um, when you're in Nirvana or in paradise, you can give up because it's a nice place to stop. But until then, you know, and I think that the worst piece, piece of advice, that's an interesting one. I don't, I don't think I've, I've been asked that one on a, on a podcast before. Um, so well done for thinking, thinking of an innovative question. But um, oh, I'm glad. <laughs> the worst piece of advice. Um, gosh. Do you know what? I, 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 couldn't even, I couldn't even think of it. I mean, you know, if you, if you treat advice um, in the same way as, as the way I sort of talk about success being a journey and not a destination. Um, Kipling talks about, you know, if you, if you can treat um, sort of success and failure as the, as the imposters they are, mm. then you're okay, right? So treat success as an imposter and failure as an imposter. Um, treat advice as an imposter both ways around because no one's, a, no one's really been in your shoes. Um, so they can advise you, but from their point of view, you know, their experience, their gut feeling, their, their set of dynamics inbound, you know, so they, they, all, all advice is, is their version of what they think might be appropriate. And, you know, it's okay in that sense to have any advice and you bring it all together and then you can form your own opinion. But, but I think, you know, bad advice is just advice that doesn't necessarily correlate with your, with your history at that time but it should be somebody else's opinion at that point. I like that. And then you take and you make what you want out of it. You build, you build, big, you build bigger pictures from it, right? Yeah. So. Um, and Michael, last question, I promise. Um, you've already, <laughs> well, you've mentioned uh, Winston Churchill and you gave us the quotes, but I was going to ask you, what's your favorite quote ever and by who and why? Oh, well, I've given, I probably shouldn't have given you all my quotes. Uh, yeah. Because <laughs> I mean, yeah. um, but uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I think I think the favorite one is that is that um, go the extra mile because there's less traffic there because it just it just Im embodies the um, the need for resilience um, and I and I do think that we should see um, we should see our challenges in life right because there's no one out there that doesn't have challenges there's nothing out there that doesn't have barriers to success. Right. And if there isn't a barrier to success, it's too damn easy and everyone is going to do it. Right. So the things that we want to strive for are going to have barriers associated to it. So first of all, get get that in your mind. Right. It's, mm. it's not going to be a, a walk in the park. Secondly, whenever you see a barrier, that is your opportunity to differentiate yourself from the competition who will not necessarily get over the barrier. So the more barriers you engage with. Right. 
the more chance you have of defining yourself against your competition. Hmm. So barriers are a positive. Knocking on the door who's already got the broom, that's a positive, right? Because you know now where the guy is that doesn't have the broom yet. Yeah. I mean, go the extra mile because there's less traffic there. I, I love the quotes. And I also like even more how you got that quote. So I think that's, that's a beautiful <laughs> story. Uh, well, Michael Tobin, thank you so much um, for sure. being on, on this podcast. Um, and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in as well. And don't forget to review and share this episode and follow the Great Business Minds podcast on all your favorite streaming and social media platforms, including Audioboom. Um, and you can find the links on the podcast description. Uh, and then do subscribe to the show as well. And we invite you back for next week's episode of the definitive show for the business of digital infrastructure, the Great Business Minds podcast. See you then.